Body language or nonverbal communications play a major role in building trust. That's why the component of intimacy accelerates positivity to build trust. As long as our body language is consistent with the words that we use, people will trust us. But on the opposite side, as Albert Morabian said in his 1971 book, uh, Silent Messages, when our words contradict the silent messages contained within them, others mistrust what we say. So body language can, or nonverbal communications can accelerate trust, but also prevent it. This episode is one of those episodes where I have a guest uh, who knows and who cares. And today I have the pleasure to have Melinda Marcus. She's an expert and a consultant on influence and on nonverbal communications. We will talk about how much control do we have over our body language and how good we are in interpreting it. We will talk about the relationship between working remotely, body language, and of course, trust. But first, let me introduce Melinda. Introduce Melinda. Melinda Marcus speaks and consults on the science of influence. Her approach helped corporate clients win multi-million dollar contracts and grow revenues totaling more than $279 million. She's one of only five people globally who have earned a special certification in body language directly from Joe Navarro, the former special agent who trained the FBI. Melinda's writing has won more than 100 awards of excellence. She earned her BA with honors in psychology from Northwestern University and a master's in communications from SMU. Her new book, Read the Zoom, we'll talk about that, shows you how to speed read people when meeting virtually or in person. We're going to have a great conversation today about body language and trust, as well as a few other things, right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Melinda, first thing that I have to say is the picture that you sent me that we have on the cover right now, that is the nicest smile ever. I mean, talk oh. about body language. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I hope what you're picking up is that it's a real smile. It and is. A lot of times in posed photos, it's hard to get that because people have their little posed smile. And it's interesting that I think you are probably picking up on that. It looks real because the whole face is involved, the, the muscles around the eyes, everything versus just the mouth, right? Ooh. We're jumping right into uh, yeah. body language, yeah. aren't we? So I, I gave the audience the uh, your bio, and there is one part there that I want to ask you about. Mm -hmm. You said that you are one of the only five people globally who have earned a special certification in body language directly from Joe Navarro, who was the former special, special agent who trained the FBI. Tell me a little more about, tell us a little more about that, that certification, what that means. So uh, I had studied on my own for about 10 years, and I actually was in programs with people who uh, one claimed that they worked with Israeli security and that had worked with TSA and various and sundry groups and trained people in the White House. And I did a lot of work on that and read a lot of books on it, many by Joe Navarro who is kind of my hero. And I wanted to get a, a master program certification. And so I was looking to do that. And there's a lot of them out there, but quite frankly, not all of them do you know the credentials of the person who's actually certifying you, correct? Right. Um, so I wanted somebody that I knew really had uh, done quite a bit of work. Joe had 20 years with the FBI where he was doing interviewing. Uh, he's credited with even breaking up an Eastern European spy ring. And one of the key things that tripped getting a breakthrough on it was reading nonverbals. And I really wanted to study with him. So I went to his website at the time. 
And I saw he had a little teeny thing saying that on occasion he would take a, an individual and work with them one-on-one. So I sent in an application for that. And I can tell you it was easier for me to get a master's degree than it was to get in to his program and get through it. So I actually worked with him close to three years, one-on-one. This was done virtually. But my assignments would be 50 pages of writing, which included primary and secondary research. He gave me pop quizzes and tests. Um, He would push back if he felt I didn't go far enough on something. I mean, it was intense. And it was one of those things where I really loved it and learned a lot. But it was, I guess, the hardest thing I've ever done in in learning and academics was that was that. So that's why it means so much to me. He doesn't even offer that anymore. Uh, that's why when he and I had our virtual meeting at the end of it, he said, you know, you're one of five people I'm giving this certification to. I don't even market that I do a certification because I don't want anybody to have that expectation. And I can't do it anymore because I just don't have the time. Well, so, obviously, he's yeah. not turning it into a business anymore. Yeah. Well, he, he now has an online business where it's recorded things and stuff like that, where you can learn through video. And I think he has trainers and folks like that. So there is something, but it isn't that one-on-one intensive work that he and I got to do together, which I just feel so honored and privileged that I, that I was one of the people who got to do that. Um, you know, so I have to ask you, uh, I, I was giving a keynote this morning to a group of, uh, well, really Fortune 200 uh, CEOs, and I stood there in the middle of the room, and I looked around, and I told them, I'm an engineer from Israel. This doesn't feel comfortable being here in the middle of the room. It, but And, and I, I told them the story of uh, how does an engineer from Israel, a software engineer, a software hardware engineer from Israel, decides one day that trust is what he's focused on. What made you all of a sudden say, I'm interested in body language. I'm interested in influence. Yeah. So I own my own company. I built it up from zero up to a multi-million dollar (coughs) advertising agency. And um, so I was constantly pitching new business, as you might guess. And that new business was, uh, you know, our lifeblood. We had, (laughs) we, you don't, if you don't, uh, Eat what you kill, you don't eat at all, right? So I, I really was interested in that piece selfishly at first on how can I increase my chances? We had very good work, but so do a lot of places. So that's where I started looking at things. And the first thing I looked at was psychology. And that was when um, I was in a program with Dr. Robert Cialdini. You and I have talked about him, and I've actually had a chance to be in a couple of his uh, programs and learned a lot from that and from reading his books. And I will say that when we were pitching, just based on our credentials and our work, if we were made it to the final three, I think our chances of winning were generally about 60%. We, we generally differentiated ourselves with the creative work we had done. But when I added in the psychology piece, that jumped to around 80, 85% success. I thought, wow, that's interesting. So I started offering that to my clients that we were doing marketing for when they were having big new business pitches. And the first engagement I had was with a group and they had a $60 million contract on the line. And um, they were stunned when I just redid their presentation based on what I learned and adding the messaging in, which naturally I did from advertising, that, that they actually got an okay in the meeting. They said that just never had happened before. So, you know, wow, that was cool. And I thought, maybe, maybe this is more interesting than advertising. And I started offering it to other clients and I was having that kind of success where they were winning the business much quicker and easier than they had had before. So their competency hadn't changed. The way they were presenting what they had to offer changed. And it was actually much later that I got into body language. And it was from meeting somebody through National Speakers Association who was um, someone who worked for TSA. And so I helped them with their speaking and they helped me with the learning about body language. And from there, I kind of enrolled in some other programs and things. And then finally with Joe Navarro. And I found when I added that piece in, so I had messaging 
already from from my work in advertising. I added in the psychology piece on persuasive psychology that I learned, not just from Cialdini, but many other researchers that I looked at. And then the last piece was body language. And suddenly that chance of winning when you're in the final three went up to about 95%. So it made it much stronger. And that's why when I talk about the science of influence, I talk about it as integrating those three things, that it is body language, psychology, and the strategic messaging, how those things come together. Interesting. So when you teach that, do you focus on how you express yourself, how you, the speaker, uh, the salesperson, maybe how do you express yourself? Or is there a part on how do you read the other person? Both. That's the integration. So you have to be able to read other people. Otherwise, what people do, and I think you've seen this. Yes. They deliver their presentation or their sales pitch, and they think it's successful because they said everything they wanted to say. Right. But they've missed how people have responded to that. And that's where people go back to their offices saying it went great. I think we got it. And then they get a phone call later that says you didn't get it and they're stunned. So it's the being able to read it in the moment. And that's one of the things I really work with people on is reading it in the moment so that you can pivot and not just go through however you practiced it. If what you're doing is not working or if they have some kind of objection that you need to stop and address or you're focused on something they're not interested in, but you thought it was important and they don't. So those things are critical to be able to have your message, but to also be able to in the moment read the response and you may have to change how you're presenting. I've even had clients see that something was going south in their presentation they just shut the laptop, forget the PowerPoint and say, you know, hey, I've got a feeling that this isn't really connecting well with you. Tell me what you're interested in. And they've been able to turn it around and win the business. Whereas if they had just done their presentation and walked out, it would have been a loss. Yeah, I, I actually experienced that myself. Uh, I remember uh, there was and I'm not going to go into the all the details, but uh, there was a salesperson from when I worked at TI. He was TI in Israel and he came over uh, to uh, we had a meeting with a major client uh, in Oregon and he asked me to get him into that meeting so he can convince them with something. And and I told him, you know what, uh, how about and so we meet at the lobby, the hotel lobby at 6 a.m. He takes me through the slides and I said, look, these are all great, but how about this? How about if we start without the slides? How about we we start talking, listening, and only then we we bring up the slides. And just by asking a few questions, we actually got answers that um, made actually made the sale based on nothing that was on the presentation, but something that was in the product. So you kind of, um, you know, you, you kind of almost made me jump into uh, the, the second part of what I wanted to talk about. Um, you're probably familiar with Albert Morabi and his book, Silent Messages in 1971. Uh, you, you know, probably one of the more misquoted, misunderstood, and I'm not sure I, how I agree with that 738.55 rule. However, he wrote something very interesting in the forward of that book. He wrote this, when our words contradict the silent messages contained within them, others mistrust what we say. And to me, this is one of the reasons why intimacy or face-to-face, body language, nonverbal communications is so important for trust. But here's the question for you. Uh, You know, you said something about helping people in in their own body language, not only in the uh, reading the other person's body language. How well can we really control it? Well, there are things we can control and things we can't control. So real feelings and, and even how we're thinking about things, attitude, will leak out from our unconscious and we have no idea we're doing that. Right. So, for example, I was out at lunch with a friend of mine and she was telling me she had just switched to this paper dental floss because she thought it was better for the environment and what she's read. And so I said, how do you like it? And she said, that's good. 
Now, did you see what I just did? Yes. It's good. Very good. Excellent. She had no idea she did that. And I said to her, really, was it that good? Or was there something that bothered you about it? She said, actually, I don't like it, but I'm doing it for the environment. (laughs) Okay. So she said, how did you know? Well, it wasn't her voice inflection as much as that mouth movement. And when somebody does this, it means I don't like or I disagree. So so that little what it was a micro expression, which really uh, that is just a very small, quick expression. It may only last a 20th of a second. I did it longer than that because I was doing it consciously. When you're doing it unconsciously, it happens like that. It's literally one frame in a video. OK, so. So a lot of people, unless they've had some training, they might not pick that up. But if you pick it up, it helps you understand better where somebody's really coming from. And it actually creates greater empathy and understanding because, you know, as I did, to ask another question and find out what's really going on when there's a disconnect between what's being said and what's being shown. Yeah, I think actually the you use the word empathy. Uh, I think it's beyond your ability to read the other person's uh, nonverbal communication. It's your intention to do that, your interest in doing that. Uh, because many people, they, the signs might be staring them in the face or even the words might be staring them in the face. They just don't care. So you have to start by caring about the other person and what they think and what they feel, I, I think, before you, you can even start interpreting. Yeah. And to just dovetail on that, many people, and I really deal in the areas of business and healthcare. Okay, so I work with people who are in corporations and I work with people, doctors and administrators in healthcare a lot. And often where the, the problem comes, where they aren't picking up the signals, is because they are just focused on what they want to say to somebody else. And what they're missing is, again, just like with some salespeople, is the response to that. And so that's a critical piece, especially now, and in healthcare, it's a particular issue, but also in companies, on retaining good employees. Because if they don't feel they're being heard and cared for, uh, and that, that their voice has some meaning, then they could go elsewhere. There's enough demand, they can find something else. So it is really important that people develop those skills because everybody pretty much can develop them. It's just whether or not you take the time and effort to do it. I do want to go back to one other thing you mentioned about can you control it. There are things you can control. We talked about it earlier when we started. People can give you a smile. It may be what we call a polite smile, not a real smile. But everybody, when we walk in the hallways and we run into somebody, we go, hi. And then as soon as we're past them, what happens? The smile comes on because it's not a real emotion. And we roll our eyes. Yeah, we may even roll the eyes, right? So, So we can control that. We control our hands. And I see politicians particularly uh, who have been coached. And so they know how to use their hands to illustrate and emphasize points, right? And they've learned things that show confidence versus things that don't show confidence. So certain things you can learn, but you're still still probably going to have emotions leak from your unconscious that you totally aren't aware of. Yeah, I, I want to read to you something that uh, that I put in my presentations when I do a workshop. And in the first part of the workshop, typically, as I tell them what trust is and why trust mm-hmm. is important. And then I go to the second part. The second part is when I take them through the model of trust. And, you know, this is kind of the model of trust uh, on my shirt. I don't buy shirts uh, just anywhere anymore. I only buy them branded. Uh, <laughs> this way, I don't have to argue with my daughter on what I bought. But uh, before I go to describe the model, here is what I actually have a slide and I'm going to read to you word for word what I put there. Do not use the trustworthiness model presented here to trick people to trust you. The truth will come out eventually and you will be anything but trusted. So I'll go back and dig a little deeper. Can you 
you know, you talked about, can I show what I really feel? Can, can my emotions come out? But let's say, let's take that same example that you gave. That person you asked, uh, do you like the, I, I don't remember what it was. Uh, do you like it? And she said, yeah, it's fine. And, and you kind of, her tone of voice, her, her body language, nonverbal expressions uh, told you that it's not. Could she have intentionally manipulated it such that it would fool you to think that, oh, yes, she does like it? No, because as I mentioned, she had what's called a micro expression that comes from the unconscious. And when I pointed it out to her, because she said, how do you know? And I said, you did this when you said it, right? Right before you answered, you went. So that she had no idea. And she even said, I didn't know I did that. So uh, you can't control that leak. Can or cannot? You cannot. cannot. Now, here are some things that there are a lot of things in the face, lots of, of muscles that can do things. What can keep you from showing those things is Botox, right? Because that paralyzes the muscles. So that's why, particularly when you were mentioning we're wearing masks, you know, at a, in COVID when we were talking before, if you have been Botoxed here and you have a mask here, now I can't really read too much on the face. But if I have full body or even here where we're talking virtually, even if I have here up, I still have hands, shoulders, body position. I have a lot of things that are going to tell be tells for me on that, not whether you're lying or not, but whether you're feeling stress or comfort and whether you're feeling high confidence or low confidence. And those are the things that I really look at to see whether or not there's a disconnect between what the words are and what's being said and what, what I'm actually seeing being shown. And I always believe what's being shown because that's more honest. We, we can easily manipulate words. Oh, right. I mean, we have, uh, we can edit them. That, that's one of the things that I say. When, when you're limiting yourself just to words, uh, you can edit it. You can read it five times. By the way, the other person doesn't necessarily understand exactly what you wanted to communicate because words are our words. Uh, when we add the nonverbal communications, we actually make the point of this is what we really mean. Uh, but, but I'm trying to make sure that I understand correctly. If I'm not going to go as far as say my life depended on it, <laughs> but if I need to convince you that, you know, whatever, I, I don't know what, that it's good, even though in, internally, knowingly, consciously, I know that it's bad. Can I convince you with my body language, with my nonverbal communications that it actually is good, even though internally I know that it's not? Uh, it depends, because I do think when you mentioned the idea of people who are con men or, or even if they're not con men, if they're people who, for self-serving reasons, want to convince you of something, if they get into a mindset where they believe their own lies, then, then their body language is going to be aligned with that. Uh, there are certain people and even certain cultures where there's much less of, of the uh, emotive types of things being shown in their facial expressions and body language. Or because of cultural differences, things that in Western culture would tell us something, in their culture we would be misinterpreting if, if we thought it meant the same thing it does in Western culture. So you have to be careful with it. There's no one thing that always means something that you have to worry about it or something. But there are, um, and this was from Dr. Paul Ekman, he, um, he identified seven expressions that were pretty much universal, that when they showed photographs all over the world, people still could identify those emotions. And so there are some things that are universal and some that aren't. So we do have to be careful with that. Um, I will tell you an interesting thing when you're talking about trying to convince people. Generally speaking, uh, people are pretty darn good at lying. 
We learn that from the time we're kids, right? And they're getting and, better and better with it. And better and better. But we're all pretty bad at detecting lies. So even experts are barely better than 50%. You know what I mean? Even a lie detector when you're talking about uh, a polygraph is about 85%, which is why in most courts that's not admissible. Uh, it's just not close enough if somebody's life's on the line, right? So we got to be careful of thinking that we can always tell. And if you look at, they did a study on Texas Hold'em poker games online where they could look at, I can't remember if it was a million games or something, but where it came down to a showdown where you see the cards, how many, what percentage, I should say, not how many, what percentage of times does the best hand win in those, in those cases? Probably low. So that is actually very good guess. It's a little teeny bit better than 50%, but it basically it comes down to it's a coin flip, which tells you how people cannot read, whether you're telling them the truth or not. Because that game really depends on bluffing versus luck. But, but what you're saying here is actually uh, a little opposite from what we said before. And that is, and this takes us to this whole poker face thing that I can control it to the point where I will not give away what I have. If I have something strong or not, I can control my body language, specifically my facial expression, to the point that I will mislead you. Some can and some can't. Now, professional players, if you look at those games, half the time they've got hats and sunglasses and all kinds of stuff to try and so you can't see their face, right? But there have been cases where you can pick up little signals. And Joe Navarro actually co-wrote a book with one of the former world champion of poker winners on, on those things. Can you always tell no? And, and it depends on the person. That's the other thing. Some people don't realize it, but they have a specific tell. And I have a lot of parents that tell me they've learned that tell with their children because over time, they recognize patterns on when later it comes out that they weren't getting the honest answer about something and they start noticing it. And if they don't tell the kid about it, then that, that tell is going to show up for them. And there was another study that was really interesting where they had college students try and tell if somebody was bluffing or not in poker. And when they showed the whole picture of the game, so you saw the face and everything, they were only about 50% accurate, meaning a coin toss, it's luck. But when they just saw the person's arm moving their bet out, it jumped to about 60% or more that were right. So again, other parts of the body that you may not be thinking of can be giving things. So the, the, what was happening is those students were picking up that it didn't look like they were real confident when they put their bet out. Right. Yeah. Uh, so so there are things that come up. And unless somebody is really intentionally trying to manage their impression, which I will tell you, most people in business are not that keen on that. They're more keen on. Did I manage my message? OK, they're going to be leaking all kinds of things um, with their whole body language, not just their face. You know, it brings up another uh, interesting point, uh, and that's different people, you know, to interpret body language, there have to be two sides. There has to be the person who expresses body language, consciously or subconsciously, mm -hmm. and the person who interprets that. Uh, there are people that, and I actually built it into the uh, trust formula, the, the uh, trustworthiness formula, that there are people who have higher or lower than average expressivity. They, they don't express not because they can control it. It's because they're not very expressive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I told you before of, about a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, who has this smile. It's kind of a smug smile on his face. And I, I know how annoying that is. And, and I told him once and, and, just, you know, kind of a friendly comment, just so that you know, you have this. He says, I know, I, I can control it. That's my face. Yeah. <laughs> but, 
But I'm, I'm not talking about somebody who has a face that expresses something without their intention. But some people can express better, some can. C can you say something about that? Well, it's, it's, it's an individual difference. So one of the things that I teach to make sure when I'm working with high-level executives and doctors that they're not misinterpreting uh, nonverbals based on false assumptions is that you have to look at that there's going to be cultural differences. There's going to be individual differences. What you're talking about right now is an individual difference. Sometimes there's differences in nonverbals based on what you picked up from your family, how you were socialized in your family to be normal. Um, and, and then the other thing can be medical. You know, some yeah. people can have a situation where they have restless leg syndrome. So the fact that their legs going up and down, you shouldn't interpret that as nervousness. You know, so there's a, there's a number of factors that can come into play that have nothing to do with that it means a certain thing. It just may be something that is for that individual, which is why I always teach people first have a conversation where you make the person feel comfortable. Don't get into anything tense at first because you want a baseline of what comfort looks like. Right. So let me take it on the other side. So on, on one side, there's can I express myself? Do, do I express myself? Yeah. But on the other side is can I perceive the other person's expressions and uh they're people who just uh perceive less they're not as uh good or or as as uh strong in in interpreting those uh those cues and and i know that you you've worked and, and you told me a few things uh before the show started about that about working with people on the spectrum about working with kids can, can you help our audience understand more. Yeah. Well, just like if you think of athleticism or or any talent like music, there are some people who are just natural and they don't have to work very hard. It just comes to them. And there's others that really have to do the hard work to get there. So I do feel that everyone can learn if they have an interest how to read people. Everyone can learn that. And I've even worked with people who have Asperger's, um, who are pretty far down on the spectrum. But by giving them the pictures and teaching them on what that means, it has helped them tremendously. Uh, I was working with one person who was in the engineering type of field. And uh, he was always like in a company, a large company, the first one they let go. Why? Because he wasn't able to build the relationships in the way that others could because he was on the spectrum. But once I worked with him, not only even through three rounds of layoffs, did he not get laid off at the company? They made him somebody as the spokesperson to go to conferences and speak for them. So that shows you how it can be learned. But the way to do that is by seeing it, you know, and that's why you mentioned my book. My book is, I think, the only book on facial expressions and body language that has more than 100 color photos. Because I, when I was learning, the books had very few photos. I was like, this is the book I wish I had. I feel you have to see it in order to understand what it means. And I even do call outs to make it even clearer of what you're looking for. So that people who may not have a natural sense of it can actually learn that as a skill. And I, I feel that I've seen it really help people. And in, in business, I had one client tell me that after reading the book, he was in a new business pitch and he saw that the prospect, well, every time he spoke, the prospect seemed to lean back and not be engaged. And even because it's Zoom, you can see closer on people. He also saw that the guy would squint every time he said something. But when anybody else on his team was talking, that didn't exist. And in fact, when one member of his team was talking, the guy was always leaned in and his eyebrows went up, his eyes got big. So he, in the moment, based on reading about this in my book, he texted her and said, you take over. Even though he was the head of new business development, she took over, they got to the next round and then they got to the finals and then they won. it. And he was so um, kind of dismayed that anybody would instantly not like him. You talked about liking at first sight, that yeah. somebody didn't like him at first sight, that he went to the first meeting 
because he wanted to test it. And sure enough, when he walked in, the guy stiffened up, kind of turned a little bit away from him. And he said, look, I just wanted to say hello. I know you're in great hands with my colleagues here, uh, but I wanted to at least come in and, and meet you. And he left because he realized for whatever reason, there's something going on here that isn't going to help us in the business. Yeah. And he said they would have never won it had he not recognized the signal. And so since you brought up the book, I, I presume we're talking about Read the Zoom. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is your new book, right? Yes. So in this book is about reading people here to here, which is the same view we have over a conference room table or a restaurant table or a desk. So it works in person as well as virtual. But I think it's something like 60% of companies now are either remote or hybrid in their plans. And so it, it's very, I think, relevant for when you don't have the nonverbal of the energy in the room to pick up on. So, you know, it's interesting because I brought this up at the uh, the keynote that I gave this morning because those CEOs, they, they do worry about uh, should we stay remote? Should we do hybrid? Should we force employees to the office, which quite a few companies have done? One of the things that I told them, and, and you know what, I, I, I'll tell you what I said. Tell me that I was wrong or th th that's fine. Uh, that... I mean, obviously, the worst type of communication is going to be we just email each other back and forth because that's words only. Phone calls, better. I would still say that the face-to-face, in-person, occupying the same room is even a little better than over a video conference, over a Zoom call. Do you agree with that? I, I do agree that you get way more information, especially non-verbally, when you're in person. You have the whole body, you have the energy, uh, you have uh, other senses that come into play, touch with a handshake. Now we can handshake with people. Uh, oxytocin. <laughs> yeah, or even just a touch on the on the shoulder or something Still like that. Oxytocin. Yeah, so, so there's a lot more information, but what I'm seeing in the hybrid models or even the 100% remote models is they do things that are social, where they get together where they can. Uh, if they're local, they can definitely get together. If they're national, they have to really have something where they bring everybody in. Because being there in person does create a different level of connection and trust when you can do things together in that way. But the problem is if you completely eliminate out the remote or hybrid, uh, as I, I recently put into a, a LinkedIn post, six out of 10 employees said that they want to have at least some uh, remote. And if not, they'll just look someplace else where they can get it. So in terms of retention of good people, it probably has to be a model that people have to look at and look at how they can be flexible with it and how they can also combine it with things that are social or fun that they do where everybody comes into the office and gets together or does something outside of the office. Yeah. And, and you know, trust does play a major role here. And in the example I gave this morning is uh, there, there are companies that offer tools, software tools that I'm going to install on your computer uh, to track how you work, how productive you are, how how long are you uh, by the computer. And one of the things uh, that it does is uh, let's track the mouse. As long as the mouse is is moving, then, <laughs> then you're working and, and you're productive. And, uh, you know, immediately as, as soon as software, pieces of software like that started coming up, people started posting videos on here's how you use Lego to move the mouse or here's how you do something with a 3D printer or... There's actually a product and even an app for the phone that would put something on the screen and you put the mouse on it and the mouse is optical. You're going to fool the mouse to think that it's moving. It's going to report. And I told him, forget all that. If you can't trust your employees to work remotely, you have the wrong employees. But if you trust them and you show them that you trust them, they will be trustworthy. Yeah. Because otherwise you, you have cognitive dissonance or feeling somebody's trusting me, but I don't think that I earn or deserve, deserve that trust. They're going to work to earn that trust. Well, when you said that, the first thing that struck me is, wow, that's a real signal you don't trust your employees. And, right? they, and they are reading that. Oh, well, yes. Uh, yes. And, and well, that's... <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. Every study I've seen, including this Gallup Global study, they found that the remote workers are actually as productive, if not more productive, and actually spend more hours working. And in fact, one of the complaints of remote workers is they don't have a border of work and not work as much. So I, you know, I don't see where that has been a major issue is the productivity thing. And and one of the other things they did was measure engagement and the engagement of people who are remote or hybrid is way higher than the people who are coming into the office. So I found that really interesting because obviously there's surveys and it's more of a quantitative study and it's self-reporting, I guess. But it was it was pretty significant, the differences. You know, it was interesting because I quoted another study. I saw the uh, Gallup one that dropped just in the last few days, the 2023 uh, report. Yeah. But there was a study that Microsoft has uh, has facilitated. Uh, I, I think it was last year or, or early this year. So fairly recent as well when they asked working remotely is productivity going up and down here's the crazy thing when they asked the employees the employees reported 87% of the employees reported higher productivity while working remote 12% of the managers reported higher productivity of the employees so i guess it's a matter of who you ask as well mm. which is kind of crazy because productivity should be something pretty objective and, and easy to measure well, on the people that I work with, and some of them have to do with call centers, right? Where it's people who are allowed to do the calls from home. We've all heard it where we hear dogs barking and babies crying and other things going on. So we know they're in their home. But what what they have found is that um, that is pretty much dictated by the technology tracking. How many calls did they take? How many people did they call back? How long with the call? And, and they are seeing that it's as good, if not better. And, and, and those are clients that I, that I work with that manage those kind of folks that are working remotely. I would think in a lot of different areas, uh, for example, in the financial industry, Morgan Stanley is one of the groups that in January, the CEO just said, look, come back and you're out. And, um, and, you know, what I've seen in those folks, some of whom have left because of that, is that they feel that they want to be at home and they have more flexibility and their their deliverables are the measure that they're doing as much, if not more. So I think it might depend on the industry because some industries, the deliverables will be the measurement. Yeah. And, and what I the advice that I gave this morning was that uh, not all jobs are the same, not all tasks are the same. And so taking someone who's, uh, let's let's say a train conductor. I don't know where I got a train conductor from. <laughs> I mean, of all the, the, a pilot. Okay, let's take a pilot, not a train conductor. So a pilot. Um, the pilot may say, I would rather work remote. Well, good for you. You have to be sitting physically, personally in the cockpit. Uh, but take a software programmer, you know, a data analyst. Do, do I really need to be at the office? So there are different tasks, different, um, uh, there are different jobs that, that would dictate different things. And, and I think one of the things I saw companies uh, doing, which I think is a mistake, is trying to look at everybody the same way and say, you're either coming back to the office or you're gone, uh, or, or we're going to be remote or we're going to be hybrid and completely regardless of what is your job and, and what is the task uh, that you're asked to do. So um, let, let me ask you uh, one. Uh, actually, this is really the, the last thing, and, and then we'll see if we left anything, uh, <laughs> if we left anything there. Uh, give us, give our audience, but, but you're going to have to use your voice to do that because some of our listeners are listening only to the audio on a podcast. Give us a couple of tales that somebody's lying. Okay, so one is you have to be very careful with that because nothing is a tell that you're lying. It's a tell that you are under stress or you're showing low confidence when you're making a high confidence statement, but it doesn't mean you're lying. And um, I think that that's really important to understand. And the way that I learned that is when Joe Navarro gave me the example of when he was an FBI guy interviewing a woman who was a suspect or person of interest on a credit 
credit card fraud thing. She comes to the FBI office. He's doing just the initial interview where he's just trying to get her to be a baseline comfort, you know, kind of softball questions. And he's seeing so much stress in her nonverbals. And he's thinking to himself, this is so great. I'm going to get a confession like this, right? So he stopped and he said, you know, I can see that you have something on your chest that, that maybe you, you feel uncomfortable about and want to get off your chest. And I just want you to know, if you tell me what it is, I will do everything I can to help you. There, there are a few oh. people here. The, there ahead. are a few people that, that have tells. It's like I, I know a few people that I know they're lying simply because, well, they're, they're talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right. Now, this story, she he tells he makes her that offer. He thinks he's going to get a confession. Yeah. And she says, oh, I'm so glad you said something. Listen, I could only find a quarter for the parking meter when I parked here, and I'm so worried my car is going to get towed. Okay, so... Huh. He was correctly picking up stress. It had nothing to do with the credit card situation. Turns out she had nothing to do with the credit card situation. So how often could we misinterpret something that we're seeing as a stress signal as a lie signal? So a lot of people feel like it's a tell if when I'm talking to you, I avert my eyes, right? And for some people, that might be a tell. For other people, it may not. It may be a stress signal. Okay, so they have actually studied videos of people who have been interviewed either on camera, uh, like they're in the news. Help me help me find my kids have disappeared. Then it turns out they're the ones that made their kids disappear. You know, so they've looked at things where afterwards they know the true story. They've also looked at tons of interviews that were actual investigations and stuff and politicians. And they have found that there's no difference between those who are looking at you while they say it and those of you who avert their eyes. And there's actually been a study where they put people in those two conditions and the people who gave more eye contact were actually the ones lying. And the reason why is that they know that people think if you don't give eye contact, you're lying. So they correct, overcorrect for it. Now, to be clear, giving eye contact is not a tell for lying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that people who know that people think if you don't give eye contact, you're lying. They correct for that and overcompensate and give you more eye contact. So there is no one signal. The myths are that it's eye aversion, that it's looking up into the right side. That one's been totally disproved many times. Uh, the other one is somebody touches their nose. Those, those all are things that can be stress signals. They can also be individual signals. I know somebody who, for whatever reason, they have a hard time giving you eye contact. They're kind of here all the time. And they actually had to go to a coach to try and get better. And they're better, but they're still not great on it, okay? Uh, Because it's just an individual difference for them. So we got to really not think we're seeing a lie. We got to think we're seeing stress or we're seeing a lack of confidence. And those things mean you got to ask another question. So if you talk to folks who have been in the CIA or the FBI, they advise you to look for hot spots. When I see those signals, it might show me a hot spot. So I'll ask another question about it and that may get the truth out. Yeah. So it's a combination of verbal and nonverbal if you're really trying to in an interview, get find out if someone's lying. And I think that it's also the aggregate of multiple signals and not just one signal. I mean, you can start seeing that, you know, they do this and they do this and they do this. And it's like, I'm starting to get a sense. And then we do have that mechanism in our brain, no matter probably how much we're trained. If, if we have some level of perception, we're starting to sense it more and more and more. But, but it's an interesting point that, that it's really a signal of stress rather than a signal of lying. Yeah, and I really think that's a critical piece to to have. And it's an interesting thing. I'm trying to remember who the two pro tennis players were, um, and I I might have it wrong. John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors. Well, I know Borg, I think, was one maybe, and I think it might have been Agassi. I can't remember. One of them had a serve that was just killer and very fast, and if the guy didn't know ahead of time which way it was going, he was generally not going to get it, and the other guy was going to win the point, right? And he noticed that the player had a tell. And every time when he threw the ball up, if his tongue was here, 
He knew it meant it was going in the corner. And he never told that player till years later. And they were friends. They're both commentators and stuff like that. And the guy never knew he was doing it. But that's how he was suddenly being able to get the serves back because he knew where it was going before it started. So sometimes an individual, to your point, an individual will have a tell. And if you know him well and have a lot of experience with them, you'll see the pattern. But as a rule, there's no one thing that's a signal all the time for lying. Well, that's a downer for all of our listeners who are looking forward to hear what exactly the tales are that are bulletproof and 100% accurate. I know. I know. It is disappointing because we all wish we had a simple answer like that. Yes. Yes. Don't we? Uh, Melinda, this was a pleasure having you. I hate to to realize that we're... Uh, Touching, we're, we're hitting the, the clock now. Melinda Marcus, an expert on influence and body language, nonverbal communications. Uh, Melinda, if uh, our audience needs your help, where do they reach you? So they can just go to influencebigdecisions.com. That should be easy to remember, influencebigdecisions.com. And you'll go to the website. There's a form there. You could always contact me. And I believe my My phone number's on there as well, so you can reach me uh, at 214-987-2400 if that's easier for you. But that's the best way. Excellent. Melinda, once again, I appreciate you being here. Body language, nonverbal communications is so important for trust. It's an indicator of trust, and it is built on trust. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. As a reminder, this is episode 12, the last episode of season 9. I will take a week break after that, as I do at the end of every season, and the first episode of season 10 will drop on July 4th, our Independence Day. And until then, may trust be with you. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.